What if your father drank a vial of holy water that might have come from the tree of life? Then you researched his work and found yourself waking up in the Middle Ages, just as the peasants began revolting. Novelist Jody Headland explores this in Come Back to Me, book one of her fantasy romance time travel series, The Waters of Time. And we will explore this story with her and go time traveling in today's episode. You've just exited your time machine and arrived at Fantastical Truth, the podcast from Lorehaven, where we find the best Christian-made fantasy, science fiction, and beyond. We apply the meanings of these tales to the real world that our author, Jesus Christ, calls us to serve. I'm E. Stephen Burnett. I publish Lorehaven.com. I also co-authored the non-fiction book about fiction called The Pop Culture Parent. And I'm Zachary Russell, and unfortunately, my DeLorean only goes to 87 miles per hour, so I won't be able to go back to 1955 or go forward or actually back to 2015 or to the Old West. But thankfully, this is episode 68, Why Do Time Travelers Like to Romanticize the Past? And we'll be joined by Jody Hedlund, author of Come Back to Me. My preferred method of travel is actually the TARDIS creatively titled a very creative acronym there from Doctor Who, Time and Relative Dimensions in Space. I'm not even sure that that's a complete sentence, but it's better than a DeLorean. It can theoretically change its shape and appearance to mimic a normal object in whatever time period it travels to. That's called the chameleon circuit, but unfortunately it broke sometime in the 1950s and it's stuck in the <laughs> shape of a blue telephone box with the sign about St. John's Ambulance Service or something or other on the side. The time traveler who runs this contraption can also change his appearance, uh, which has helped the show to go on for a while. And I just, I love it. I enjoy the idea of time traveling. I enjoy particularly the worldview clashes that occur when a person from the present travels to the future and the past and discovers that things are quite different. Uh, I think time travel stories are a great way for Christians, uh, readers in particular, to step outside of their world and look at history with new eyes. And I really enjoyed getting into that with our guest, uh, from whom we'll hear in just a little bit. First off, though, Zach, we have a concession stand. Very, very brief here, uh, especially because this episode is going to be different in a few other ways. Uh, the theme park is open for the summer. Let's grab something fried on a stick and uh, select one from these three concessions. As I mentioned first, this episode will be a little different. We're going to check a lot of books' names in this episode. That's because we've actually grown enough uh, in this podcast to open Fantastical Truth to more relevant sponsors. And you'll hear one or two of those going forward basically every episode, I think. And these are, by the way, are going to be relevant sponsors of interest to Fantastical Truth readers. No earbuds, no sunglasses, no meal delivery services, no gold buying on this ship, at least as far as I know. Uh, we're going no to mattresses. focus. Yeah, no, no mattresses either. Uh, we're going to focus on focus on the types of books that readers will want, especially readers uh, of Christian persuasion who want Christian-made stories in fantastical genres. Well, my favorite time travel movie is the Tom Cruise movie, The Edge of Tomorrow, which has sort of been repackaged as Live, Die, Repeat. If you've listened to us before, you know that I am an unashamed fan of Tom Cruise action movies. And it's because of a theory I have, which is that Tom Cruise is rich enough to not have to appear in any bad movies. I think he only chooses good movies to be in, and that is one of my favorites. It's sort of time travel. It's sort of Groundhog Day. He keeps going back after he dies. He, he re relives the same day in this uh, world war against uh, alien invaders. So 
again, aliens, a big topic right now as always. But uh, that is a fun movie because of the, he goes from a coward to a, like a warrior hero. And uh, it's just a very unique way of the way the time travel mechanism in that works. I won't spoil it if you haven't seen it, but definitely go see that movie. My first exposure to any fantastical story included time travel rather gratuitously in the, at least in the beginning and end of each episode of Superbook, the Christian influenced or Christian made anime from the early 1980s. I've mentioned it on our podcast before, uh, in which a supernatural, divine, magical book uh, (laughs) manages to send uh, two children and their toy robot into Bible stories. And there's this, uh, weirdly animated time vortex effect with a lot of dancing shapes and spinning wheels and such. And uh, that was kind of cool. And so time travel for me is one and the same with fantasy as an idea, just some kind of supernatural invasion into the real world. And Christians uniquely have an appreciation for time travel because we live our lives in light of what we believe is a magnificent supernatural past event. Uh, the arrival of Jesus on the earth. And a lot of us would love to go back and enjoy some of those events firsthand. And we spend a lot of time in our churches and in our devotional lives thinking about those events. Now, we also spend a lot of time learning about new stories, new Christian made fantasy stories, novels, published novels that we want to explore. And one of those is actually our first sponsor of the day. Yes, we have two. This is episode sponsor number one, which is Joshua David's novel Seed Judgment. Note the colon in my pronunciation there. Seed Judgment. Seed Judgment is a science fantasy tale of biblical proportions from Joshua David, and it is available now exclusively on Amazon. Here's the description. Seed falls from the heavens and judges humanity. One foretells of the coming calamity, but the words are heeded too late. Few remain after the war against the cosmic demon. Long confined to one of the few outposts left on Earth, Saul accepts an unauthorized mission to find a survivor lost in the Vegas wastes. He believes his target is special, imbued with a spirit that might finally turn the tide against the darkness. But to save her from the risen, still haunting humanity, he'll have to fight alone and outgunned against enemies that have already conquered the world. End quote. That was the back cover. Lorehaven actually just did an extended sponsored review of Seed Judgment. And in part, this is what we said about it. Quote, Joshua David's seed judgment marries the thing, resonant evil, and Mad Max to generate a post-apocalyptic tale of frenetic intensity. There is a beauty to the brutality, a dance in the destruction. End quote. See the show notes for more information about seed judgment by Joshua David. We will link to that sponsored extended review in the show notes, as well as the review to the book, which is available exclusively at Amazon. Well, Stephen, you had my attention there with the whole uh, reference to Resident Evil, because it does feel like with this whole COVID thing that we are sort of living in a version of Resident Evil of uh, some kind of evil corporation in charge of a biological agent that, whoops, escaped into the world and caused tons of chaos. But, oh my, we could get in so much political hot water if we talk about that anymore. So let's bring in our guest today. I think she's she's opening up the DeLorean, the the door is coming up to uh, vertically like they do, and uh, but actually she has a much more fun, imaginative way of time travel that I can't wait to hear about. So let's welcome Jody to the show. 
first, let's pick up our copy of Come Back to Me and read the back cover description. Quote, the ultimate cure that could heal any disease? Crazy. That's exactly what research scientist Marion Crichton has always believed about her father's quest, even if it does stem from a desire to save her sister from the genetic disease that stole their mother from them. But when her father falls into a coma after drinking a vial of holy water believed to contain traces of residue from the tree of life, Marion must question all of her assumptions. He's left behind tantalizing clues that suggest he's crossed back in time. Insane! Until Marion tests his theories and finds herself in the Middle Ages during a dangerous peasant uprising. William Durham, a valiant knight, comes to Marion's rescue and offers her protection as his wife. The longer Marion stays in the past, the more she cares about William. Can she ever find her father and make it back to the present to heal her sister? And when the time comes to leave, will she want to? End quote. And in the show notes, you can find our description for Come Back to Me in the Lorehaven Library. We'll also introduce a Jody Hedlund, who's now with us. Jody Hedlund is the best-selling author of more than 30 historical novels for both adults and teens, including Come Back to Me, and is the winner of numerous awards including the Christy, Carol, and Christian Book Awards. Jody lives in Michigan with her husband, busy family, and five spoiled cats. She loves to imagine that she really can visit the past, although she's yet to accomplish the feat, except via the many books she reads. Jody, thanks for coming aboard the fantastical Starship Fantastical Truth. No, well, thank you for having me today. Well, it's great to understand uh, some, of the, uh, some of the ideas that go into this story. Uh, you've got time travel in here. You've got romance, uh, you've got some uh, Middle Ages stuff, you've got a peasant uprising, uh, and you've got vials of holy water, which is uh -huh. one of the more unusual means of time travel that I've seen. And in yeah. my fiction pursuits, I've seen a lot of them. Uh, a magic a phone box, uh, a um, all-purpose a steampunk time machine from the original H.G. Wells concept of time travel. Uh -huh. uh, lots of different devices to go back in time. I'm curious uh, how you came up with the, with the idea of, uh, of it being basically tree of life residue that was made into holy water, which may have also <laughs> caused uh, certain phenomena in church history. The ideas for this time travel, obviously, I wanted it to be believable, right? And so when you're coming up with a time travel vehicle, that's really difficult because, you know, you think of, like you said, some of the other methods that have been used in different uh, books and different movies and things like cars or big time machines that people have used. And you're taking a body out of the present and plopping it down into the past. And, and most of us know that that probably is not going to happen. So believability is a really big thing. So as I began to plot my novel, I really wanted to find something that was plausible, at least as much as possible for a time travel. So that led me to doing research on ancient holy water, as you said, and it was once believed to cure diseases. And this holy water was actually sold to med in medieval times to pilgrims who were traveling from cathedral to cathedral, and they would buy these little small flasks. They were known as ampulla. And there are many recorded healings from this holy water or holy oil. And if you were to go to Can the Canterbury Cathedral today, 
you would even see in the stained glass windows there of the, they're called the miracle windows. And you would see depicted there pictures or stories of people being healed from holy water. So it's written in time <laughs> that this holy water was, was miraculous in some way. And there are other sources as well. People throughout history spoke of life-giving water sources. You will hear stories about the mythical exploits of Alexander the Great. And there's stories from the early crusades of people looking for this life-giving water source. And even here in America, the claims of Ponce de Leon during his explorations of Florida, he was looking for the Fountain of Youth. So interestingly, curative holy water healings are woven throughout history and and they're found in records in England, France, and even Italy. So while nothing has ever been proven about this actually causing healings, there's lots of clues that point to it being very special. So I was just trying to understand how the holy water was possibly linked to the original tree of life. And while there's no definite clues that point us to that, uh, it was fun to speculate <laughs> and kind of draw that association. But the thing that I found out is that not only are the healings associated with the water, but there's also recorded realistic visions that were connected to the holy water. So interestingly, uh, the other area that I found realistic visions were with people who had who had comas. And I read accounts of patients who woke up from their comas in describing having very realistic dreams while in their comatose states, dreams that almost felt as if they were living an alternate life. So Long story short is that when I plotted and wrote, come back to me, my vehicle for transporting people into the past became a merging of these two concepts, a coma and ancient holy water. So the characters in my story drink a small amount of the holy water, which then puts them in the coma while they cross over to the Middle Ages. And in my story, they're crossing over to the Middle Ages, specifically to a time when they thought they could find more holy water and, and sort of exploit this holy water. <laughs> so the having the body in, in two different eras created some hurdles to work through during the writing and the editing. But overall, I think when readers put down the book, at the end, my hope is that they'll come away wondering, just like the characters, if crossing into the past was just a realistic dream or if it really, truly happened. <laughs> so that's a little bit about why and where I chose my inspiration for this particular time travel. And I think another aspect of this whole miracle water was part of it part of all of us wants to believe that miracles can still occur. And so my Waters of Time series gives us hope that miracles still do happen, but perhaps not in the ways we're expecting them to. I like that. 
I also like the exploration of living water, which is a symbol, a truth that goes back mm -hmm. all the way to God's creation of the world. Uh, water, of course, is the surface over which God's spirit is seen hovering in the opening verses of Genesis 1. God separates land from the water on day three, and he puts uh, humans into the garden, which, of course, uh, originates four rivers before the mm -hmm. flood. A judgment right. of water comes along and rewrites all of Earth's uh, topography. Uh, those four rivers, as you speculate, may have carried residue from the tree of life. Yes. And then throughout uh, the Old Testament history, you have everybody wondering what's going to happen to the water, where are they going to get the water. Uh, Moses has to strike a rock and bring water from it. So again, you get this idea of the division of the land and the water. And then in the prophecies of the new heavens and new earth, you have water coming from the throne in the new uh -huh. Jerusalem. And then uh, water, as far as we know, uh, will continue in some form or another uh, after Christ comes back to remake all of creation. And then famously, of course, in uh, John chapter 4, uh, Jesus is talking with the Samaritan woman at the well, who's obviously and understandably concerned about getting enough water, and he promises her living water. So this symbol just keeps going and going. And in right. this case, uh, you've done something unique with it in making it not just a means of healing, but a means of traveling back and maybe experiencing uh, the past uh, history in uh -huh. some way. Uh, now, you know, Christianity, uh, Christian publishing has had a, a, a long legacy of, uh, you know, romantic or, or historical romance. And so you managed to get that in here as well with Come Back to Me. I'm just curious, you know, because this is obviously not, you know, a story that I, or type of story that I read a lot of, you know, being a uh -huh. fantasy fan. Like, I like it when there's time travel. There's time travel. I can go a lot of places into different genres. But I was curious from your perspective as someone who's created these kinds of stories, uh, why do historical fiction fans enjoy uh, this combination of history and romance? You know, what, why do we enjoy traveling back to the past or to a more uh, traditionally romantic uh, interpretation of history? From my perspective, when you look at romanticizing something, you, you want to make it ideal, perhaps even more appealing than it really was. Mm -hmm. And so in light of that definition, I would say that really not just historical readers come to reading to romanticize the past, but I would say most readers really come to a reading experience expecting that that reading experience is going to make life seem better than it really is. And ultimately, they come to be entertained, same as a historical romance reader. And to be taken out of the stark realities of life, our problems, our worries, our heartaches. And when we're reading, we want to forget about those things for a little while. And so, again, no matter what genre, whether historical fiction, suspense, fantasy, contemporary, readers really want a story that transcends life. Whether they realize it or not, I, I've I've had plenty of discussions with with readers who are like, oh, no, I just want the gritty, realistic material and darkness. No yeah. parents continue <laughs> yeah. darkness in the basement. Right. Right. But I think even those readers truly at the end of the day would be disappointed if the story doesn't end on some kind of redemptive note. And when I was thinking about this, I, I remember reading the Divergent series by Veronica Roth a few years ago when it was really popular. 
and my kids were in that age group of, of kind of reading dystopian. And I remember, this is a spoiler, so if you haven't read the Divergent series, I'm super sorry, but this, the author, Veronica Roth, she ends up killing her main character in book three. And I remember at the time, readers felt so let down. I was going on Amazon to buy the book for one of my kids, and I was shocked at all of the one-star reviews that were coming out. And the readers had trusted her to bring the series to a satisfying conclusion. They had put their heart and soul into all these books and then felt let down. Let's just face it. Most of the time, killing off your main character just doesn't work, especially at the end of a trilogy when you've already learned to love that character. And so even though it may have been realistic and may have been gritty and it may have been what might happen in real life, readers did not like that. They wanted the ending. They wanted, they wanted it to transcend real life, basically. And I've experienced that myself, actually, in the original version of my very first book, which is based off of the life of John Bunyan, the writer of Pilgrim's Progress. Oh, yes. Yeah. Um, it's a book called The Preacher's Bride. I had my hero languishing in prison at the end of the book, because that's what really happened to him in real life. He spent 12 years in prison for being a preacher, and he wasn't supposed to be at that point in time in history. And my publisher kindly asked me to change the ending so that the hero was released and reunited with his wife. And even though I balked at the idea of fictionalizing the ending, I went ahead and I rewrote the last chap chapter to reflect a happy ending. Like I had him released from prison for a day or, you know, I didn't really give a time period, but I, I had him get out for a short time, which was true. They did have periods where they were released. I felt bad about changing it. But over and over from readers over the years, I've gotten feedback who say they loved the ending and that it made them cry. And I shudder to think if I'd insisted on having my own way and kept my hero in prison just so the story could remain that gritty, true to life, <laughs> you know, right. fact. And I'm pretty sure I would have had a lot of disappointed readers. So all that to say, I think readers really want to arrive at the last page with a feeling of hope. And so I think romanticizing the past, the world is already full of enough tragedy and enough heartache and enough loss. And really readers pick up a book to escape that reality. And they don't want their reading experience, uh, from what I've experienced personally and from what I've heard, they don't want their reading experience to mimic life as they know it. They want that reading experience to make them aspire to live better and to be different when readers read about the past, they're no different. They want to go in, they want to experience true love. They want to experience romance. They want to experience the past in a way where they come out, not only learning a lot of new things, but also being entertained and encouraged and inspired to know that they can strive to rise above whatever they're going through the same way the characters do. One of my favorite quotes from C.S. Lewis's The Screwtape Letters is when Screwtape is urging his demonic uh, under-tempter Wormwood. Uh, Screwtape is the mentor and Wormwood is the junior tempter. Uh, these are all demons and they work in the lower archy, serving Satan and their enemy is God. And Screwtape is writing letters to Wormwood and he tells him, you'll notice we have got them confused about the meaning of the word real. Mm. And in Screwtape's view, a lot of devilishness 
works when you confuse people about what real is. He takes different approaches for different people. Like you might try to persuade someone, especially during wartime, which World War II is the original context of the screw tape letters. Demons might try to confuse you. Screw tape says uh, that real is only the horrible stuff, the war, the suffering, uh, the people being torn apart by bombs. And in screw tape's view, if you can get someone to say, well, that's real. But if I go into a church and I see beautiful sunshine through a stained glass window and I'm feeling in touch with God and I'm learning more about Jesus, uh, screw tape does his business when he gets you to think that's not real. That's all an illusion. My perspective is all of it is real because we live in a fallen world. Uh, people do rightfully want to escape that fallen world. Uh, J.R.R. Tolkien makes the example of thinking about escapist literature. Some people would say, oh, that's an escapist story. And Tolkien says, why should it be wrong to try to escape from prison? He's not saying this world is a prison, uh, but he is drawing the comparison to a groaning world, a world that is suffering. And the Christian looks at the world and maybe does try to acknowledge reality, acknowledge the reality of sin and suffering and people in comas, which is how your book opens. It's literally the first line, great hook there. But mm -hmm. real for the Christian is redemptive. Uh, we don't stay in the grim, dark reality where people suffer and there are no easy answers and there's conflict and political strife and all of this. We do look forward to a world where Christ will return, uh, his living water will fill the earth, and then we can look back on history. And in a sense, I think in an eternal perspective, we will be re romanticizing the past, not because it's us trying to escape, but because Christ has proven himself king over all of history. He's the mm. ultimate true time Lord. And so we can look back and in a sense, see the past, you know, in that traditional meaning of the word romantically, we can right. see how he was working in the past and you know, drawing all things to himself and working all things together for good. It won't be sentimental at that point. It will be sacred. So mm. it, your answer helps me see that, you know, and then yeah. looking, looking at, at stories like even a, um, a historical romance, you know, with or without time travel, and realize that in a good way, that is what this kind of story is reflecting. Right, right. Wow, great points. Love that. Well, let's pause for just a moment. We have our second sponsor for this episode, which is A.J. Chamberlain's novel, Urban Angel. So jumping for a moment from time travel to uh, this story of courage, redemption, and spiritual warfare set in contemporary London. Here's how the back cover describes it. Quote, one day the church will be made perfect, but for now she bears the scars of war. Alex Masters knows all about that war. For her, the journey to faith has been marked by grief and loneliness, but still she chooses to believe. Daisy is a child of the social media generation, lost in every belief and none. When tragedy strikes, she seeks out her cousin Alex because she knows that Alex understands what it is to face the darkness. They come together, believer and unbeliever, hunted by an enemy that will do whatever it takes to achieve its goal. Alone, Alex and Daisy would be defenseless, but this is not a struggle against flesh and blood, and not every weapon is visible. End quote. Urban Angel launches in ebook and paperback format on July 1st and is available from all the major ebook platforms and your local bookshop. Urban Angel is the first book in the Masters series. We have the Amazon link in the show notes. A couple of reviewers, not Laura Haven yet, but some reviewers say, quote, Urban Angel is distinctly different from standard Christian fiction. It doesn't shy away from the tough issues faced by Christians. It's gutsy, frank, and relevant, end quote. 
So what are some of the risks that we could face while time traveling? I mean, I'm not sure uh, if you've done a lot of uh, time traveling via uh, other fiction on your own. You mentioned some of the time machines, whether it's a DeLorean or a TARDIS or yeah. some other contraption. <laughs> Mm-hmm. In terms of your approach to the story, what are some of the, the conflicts that people have if they're going back into the past via magic, holy water, or any other means? I think one of the biggest risks has to do with believability, if we're talking from a reader's perspective. Right. It is, it is definitely a, a fantastic concept. But then I also think in terms of, okay, what if I could really go back in time? You know, Some have said, right. for example, that even if a person from the present could go back a few centuries, we wouldn't you know, run into some paradox. We would immediately die of diseases that our immune systems are not right. used to confronting. Yeah. Those kinds of issues are, are interesting to me as well. If I were to have written this book exactly how it was in the Middle Ages, the language even would have been different. And I do allude to that to some degree. So for example, how we speak today our modern English in the Middle Ages in the 1380s, when my character travels back to the Middle Ages of the 1380s, it would have been vastly different. And so the words, the way they spoke, it wasn't quite as as bad as it would have been, say, even 500 years before that. It had evolved into mostly what we know today, but still, it was very different. And so even as my character's walking around talking, she has an accent. She, ha- she does sound different to the people of her time, of that time. So I do recognize that aspect. The clothing, obviously, she's not wearing medieval clothing when she shows up. So, you know, how did I work around that? You know, that was a challenge, <laughs> trying to get her into something that didn't make her stand out. Having her not ask really odd things. Yeah. So in looking at all of these, all of the differences really between the two time periods, sort of had to figure out what's really important to emphasize and what's not. And how I decided to do that was based on my character specifically. She's a modern day woman. She's a brilliant scientist. She's independent, So when she's now in the past, emphasizing the things that seem stark and different from her perspective. So the things she notices about the past that are so different are coming from a scientist, from a woman who's independent. And now she's in a time when women aren't so independent. She can't just walk around and do whatever she wants. And, you know, she needs a chaperone and she has to, she has to be taken care of by someone. She can't just run off and go any place she wants. So just all of the lack of technology and transportation and all of that that she's accustomed to. I think that there's there were just a lot of those kinds of things to work through to make it so that readers can view the past through her eyes, through a modern person's eyes, and see the differences the way she does. Exactly. I think the most interesting conflicts that I enjoy in stories where someone from the present travels back into the past are the conflicts that arise because of difference in worldview. Some of those fish out of water elements can quickly become tropes. You know, I I understand the need for some editing there. Like, okay, uh, it's just assumed that someone from the present is in the past and the past people are not going to understand the fact that someone wears jeans and 
one of my earliest exposures to time travel stories was in the Christian-made audio drama series Adventures in Odyssey, which had a time travel-like device called the Imagination Station. A little TARDIS inspiration there. Love that Mm -hmm. so much. Uh, I I love those stories. You know, and Mr. Whitaker, the inventor, would send kids back into either biblical accounts or historical narratives. And in the early episodes, they would spend a lot of time on like, wow, what are you wearing? What is this thing called jeans? And then mm-hmm. in the later episodes, you know, they would circumvent that. You know, let's just mm-hmm. assume that you are part of the story. You're going back to the first century AD and you belong there. And that's a little bit easier, of course, for kids who are familiar with, uh, with Sunday school. But even in another newer series, uh, Doctor Who is one of my favorite uh, time travel uh, adventure uh, kind of space opera dramas. They have these little magical rules to head off some of those fish out of water conflicts. You know, you would either dress the period based on the TARDIS's uh, expansive wardrobe. Uh, the TARDIS has some kind of a sci-fi magic that gets in your head and automatically does the translation. You know, they, they kind of head off some of that stuff so that you can look at the past and, like you said, appreciate those big issues. You know, how right. do we look at the world versus how? people in the past looked at the world and the middle ages is a is a fascinating period because it was recently reading uh, or listening to a podcast or something about just how different people at least in the european part of the middle ages how different they are from uh, modern culture now everything to nice. them was in a sense magic or supernatural partly because they didn't understand things like germs and all of that and so if there was a plague, it had to be directly sent by God, mm-hmm. you know, and I look at that and I think, okay, well, in a sense, you know, God is sovereign. And so, yes, he's, he is behind it in a way, but there's also germs. There are all these other things that we can discover by science and then hopefully find cures for uh, using holy water or otherwise. But one of the, I think the best purposes of a historical fiction is to help readers appreciate history uh there's a there's a lot of uh i think um dominating of history uh, because they didn't know some sciencey stuff and because they may have accepted some myths and even some paganism that we we understand are not correct now but it leads to uh almost a profound disrespect for history uh even if you get into you know people wanting to tear down statues and things like that you can look at history and recognize that yes uh, it was a lot of it was pretty bad. They believed some bad things. They did some bad things. There were a lot of systemic evils there uh, that we now understand are not great. But you can also look at history and respect how God was working. Uh, you can even appreciate, I think, the conflicts and how people saw the world and then even uh, laugh a little bit at the idea of someone from history not understanding why in the world you're wearing this strange garment. That was one of the things that my heroine, she, she comes to understand as a scientist that they're so much more accepting of the healing and the miracles that happen with the holy water during the Middle Ages. It was a very common, accepted thing that you could be healed in certain ways with relics or blood or from the saints or, you know, all of these different things. And so they're, they didn't, they don't bat an eye when she explains how the holy water can heal. They, they're like, yeah, let's try it. You know, <laughs> But in modern times, you find so much more skepticism of miracles. So it's one of those things in the past that, yeah, they didn't have the entire knowledge of science that we have, but and like you said, they were more mythical and believed a lot of superstitions and attributed a lot of things 
causes to things that weren't necessarily true. But the simplicity of their faith is something I think we can also emulate and and appreciate. Amen. Amen. Mm -hmm. There's a quote from L.P. Hartley in 1953, uh, the quote, the past is a foreign country. They do things differently there, end quote. I think that almost undersells it. Uh, In some ways, the past is an alien planet. They do things (laughs) differently there whether it's the Middle Ages or even earlier. And I think the wise Christian reader who's appreciating either nonfiction or fictional portrayals of the past can take that into account. Uh, All that stuff we're trained to do about trying to understand different cultures and not immediately judging them, although we know that all must uh, be under the scrutiny of Scripture. Uh, We also need to separate what is a command from God versus just a tradition of men and then even something that someone did in the past that isn't quite biblical, uh, we need to at least try to respect that person or that culture as image bearers of God and not just throw it all out because they didn't understand how exactly you got rid of germs. And it's not always right. just pr- trying to pray them away or you know clear out the demon or something like that. Uh, there may be a medical issue there, but maybe in our era, we could also understand maybe some of the spiritual causes of things while still giving somebody a Tylenol. Right. So... Last question yeah. here, at least for the, the main questions, how can a reader who enjoys time traveling into a historical fiction show honor and love for our creator, for the true time Lord? Like, what are some unique ways that fans of these kinds of stories can glorify God, uh, learn to draw closer to him according to his own uh, self-revelation and worship him through enjoying these stories? For me, anyways, as I was plotting out this story, I, I kind of felt like I might be risking calling into question God's sovereignty, you know, like perhaps even being a little bit sacrilegious by writing a time travel story. So I I think that that's one of the things that we, we struggle with. Like if God is truly in control of time and space, then mere mortals couldn't possibly travel back in time, could they? So I was, really trying to be careful about not blurring the lines of God's sovereignty and his created order of time. But as I began to really delve deeper into what the Bible had to say about time, I was really surprised by all the references that allude to the idea that God views time so much differently than we do. I ran across, uh, you probably, most of our listeners will probably know 2 Peter 3, 8, which says that with the Lord, one day is a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. In Come Back to Me, I reference many more scriptures and occurrences of God operating outside the scope of time. And I think that verse really encapsulates that. He's not bound by the same constraint. And I have the feeling one day we're going to be surprised at just how differently time truly is when we see it from God's infinite perspective. When I look at the way modern physicists describe time, because I did a lot of research into the physics of time as I was trying to come clarify some of the different theories that are out there, a lot of them say that time is not linear. It's more like a a box. And I was thinking, yeah, that, that makes sense because the past and the present almost seem to happen simultaneously to God. So that, for example, a prophet like the Apostle John could not only just see into the future, but he was actually standing there seeing things unfold in the book of Revelation. So perhaps everything has already happened in the future and John was 
put into the future. <laughs> you know, so I think we tend to stick to what we know, what we see, what we understand as being the truth. Just like the people once believed the earth was flat and the sun revolved around the earth. Well, now we know much, much differently, right? And perhaps one day we'll realize just how differently time operates and that the Lord of time has a much bigger picture of it than we can comprehend from our finite perspective. So I really do hope readers come away with a bigger picture of God and his possibilities, that the past and present and future are intertwined. And uh, if the infinite God can see all of eternity at once with no beginning and no ends, perhaps we can have a different perspective too. A famous time traveler is known to have said, People always assume that time is a strict progression of cause to effect, but actually, from a non-linear, non-subjective viewpoint, it's more like a big bowl of wibbly-wobbly, timey-wimey stuff. That's the 10th Doctor uh, from the uh, famous Season 3 Doctor Who episode, Blink, uh, one of my favorite quotes about time travel. Uh, as you mentioned, though, Jody, lots more better quotes about God's mastery over time. That's why I love calling him the actual, the true Time Lord. Uh, we can find those in scripture, uh, your passage there from First Peter 3. Uh, God sees thousands of years in the blink of an eye. He is, uh, Christians believe, he is outside time. And so therefore, being the creator of time, he can cross into it and out of it uh, as easily as he wants. Jesus, of course, in some way, being both God and man, did experience time. And because he is still incarnate to this day he is still the god man sitting at the right hand and in, in in heaven how does that work uh, there are references to time passing in heaven at least heaven as we know it now a revelation refers to people who are given white robes and told to wait a little while before their deaths can be avenged and then uh, once one uh, one judgment is about to begin uh, the apostle remarks that there is silence in heaven for half an hour I don't know exactly if that half an hour is the same as our half an hour. They didn't have uh, clocks back then. But the point is, is that somehow there is some kind of perception of time in heaven. And yet my personal theory uh, before Christ unites heaven to earth for the new heavens and new earth is that saints in heaven now, my the this is my theory, this is my speculation. I think we're free to speculate here. I think the saints in heaven now perceive time passing, but at a quicker rate. Uh, I would like to think that a person who died, you know, in you know, 2000 years before Christ has only experienced a few weeks of absolute bliss, uh, getting to enjoy uh, witnessing Christ's redemptive plan play out over thousands of years of human history, uh, but at an accelerated rate. Uh, yeah, they get the greatest hits Narnian. version. You yes, know. exactly. Narnian time dilation. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And, and, you know, Lewis, of course, may have uh, may have hit on more uh, divine realities than even he knows. Again, that is just my fan theory. Mm -hmm. um, but, I, you know, for my part, it is at least a way to reckon with the idea of someone who may have died, you know, in a terrible, terrible event, uh, even 100 years ago. Now, that person then maybe have not spent hundreds of years waiting for Christ to redeem all things. Uh, it may have just been a few weeks for them. So. I think that maybe, I mean, I don't know if time travel could happen to humans now before Christ returns, but uh, Randy Alcorn, one of my favorite authors uh, in his big book on heaven, uh, he mentions that he thinks, it's just safe to speculate, that in the new heavens and new earth, maybe there will be some kind of time travel effect. You know, Maybe you'll get to peer back into the past and experience these realities. I don't know if you'll be an active participant, but wouldn't it be just like God? 
to open a window into history and let us get to see uh, the real life parting of the Red Sea or the mm. resurrection of Christ or even historical events uh, like uh, like in the Middle Ages. You know, maybe some of those myths and legends about people, uh, we'd be able to clear those up because we right. could actually just look back through there uh, like explorers, uh, hopefully uh, not uh, not violating some divine prime directive or temporal prime directive. Don't interfere with history. But we might be able to clear up some of those mysteries that people have often had for quite a while. So now that we're speculating, uh, you've mentioned before that you have uh, some other uh, fairy tale adventures for younger readers. And I'd like to know a little bit more about those as we wrap to a close and then point people into your future and what you're working on next and where people can uh, find out more about you. Right. Well, I do write young adult fantasy fairy tale more like. And I have three different series that have released so far. And the the series that just released in the fall last fall were based on popular fairy tales like Cinderella, Sleeping Beauty, and Snow White. And that's called The Fairest Maidens. And then um, you can find all of my young adult series on my website. They're listed there. But then as far as the next time travel book, I have the second book in the series releasing in January of 2022. And this one is called Never Leave Me. And it carries on the story of the the main character from book one, her sister is dying. And so the second book is all about this dying sister and how she experiences the holy water (laughs) and that's all i'll say (laughs) i don't want to spoil it (laughs) all right and uh, what is that website then my website is jodyhudlin.com all right and how can others follow you on any social media any other uh, portals you'd like to provide the best place to connect with me is on facebook on my in my reader room i have a group that we talk about books we share fun writing related or reading related things. I post early reading opportunities for people who want to sign up to read, have advanced reading copies. We have giveaways, just a, a really great place. And that is Jody Hedlund's reader room on Facebook. And uh, companions of time Lords or any other time adventurers can find those links in the show notes for this fantastical truth episode. Jody, it's been great to get to know you to explore this, uh, this different take on time travel. I look forward to learning more about what is in your future and especially look forward to any possible real life time travel adventures uh, that we may be able to undertake under the supervision (laughs) of the ultimate time Lord. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Well, that was a great interview, Stephen, you had there with Jody. Um, I really loved how her time travel works sort of like a coma where it works like a dream and you're living out this whole other personality you know, this whole other story. I've had some dreams like that. In fact, I talked, I shared that in one of my Lorehaven articles that I had this like entire, like years long dream that happened. So it's sort of, sort of like an inception. And it really, it made me really wonder, like, I'm not saying I time traveled, but it, it resonated with me what she shared about that. So uh, that was really cool. Her books sound fantastic. But now let's go to the comm station and hear from the fantastic fans. So we got a note here from, uh, it's a pseudonym, not Leia, who wrote to us about episode 67, which is about preachy fiction, but preachy Christian fiction in a ways. And how can Christian fiction do a better job of discipling rather than just 
preaching at people. And so not Leah left this comment quote. I think a large part of the problem is that a lot of people in the subculture have trouble distinguishing between descriptive versus proscriptive, which makes sense because there have been countless denominational and church splits over what exactly is descriptive versus proscriptive in the Bible itself. At least they come by it honestly. End quote. So yeah, this is uh, definitely something I've studied in detail. You look at the book of Acts, for example, and the different ways that people were baptized, uh, or the different ways that they encountered the Holy Spirit. Are those just descriptive in how the apostles encountered it, or is that the normal Christian life and how we should be encountering the Holy Spirit or be baptized? And there's many, many more examples that you can find in Acts and other books of the Bible. So yeah, this is always a debate Christians have, and that does make up part of our denominational differences. I think, though, that Denominational differences are not necessarily a bad thing. It uh, it is a good thing because it allows people to have that freedom on matters of opinion, like not core doctrine convictions, but more things that are on the on the persuasion level or the opinion level. But yes, in Christian fiction, we bring all that same passion that we have for the gospel and other opinions to how certain themes should play out in books. I would not separate by any means, from someone who viewed the purpose of a Christian-made novel uh, as preaching. Uh, someone like that is my brother or sister, is not even worth starting another denomination about. Amen. What we explored in this episode was mainly the, the idea, the subconscious idea Christians have, is that preaching is the most godly way to disciple someone. All Christians ought to agree that our calling as his church, as Christ's church, is discipleship. That is a mission that we all share. What we should not claim then is that that means we should all be preachers. Uh, the Apostle Paul later says not everyone should be a preacher. Not everyone should be a teaching elder in a church. Uh, teaching elders have a unique calling. They have a unique skill set, a very special set of skills. Uh, they are special in that way, but they're not super Christians. And so I think a Christian who is making a story doesn't have the same calling as a teaching elder. I would challenge someone who assumes that. And in fact, I had a good productive discussion with uh, someone in the realm sphere, the realm makers group uh, about this, uh, about the nature of a sermon. How do we understand a sermon? You know, I would say that every Christian should teach in a way, and therefore every story made by a Christian in a way teaches. We ought not ignore the mission of a story to include those kinds of deep meanings as means of discipleship, but that doesn't mean that the book is a preacher. That doesn't mean that the story is a sermon. Next on Fantastical Truth, speaking of discipleship, Christians talk a lot about backsliding, the term that we have for doubting or struggling with our faith, uh, stepping back sometimes and needing to return to commitment to Christ. Often the stories we share reflect characters in fiction who do the same. But how can Christian-made stories best explore this challenge, moving past cliches and shallow pictures of backsliders and showing more realistic images of people who do fall back from faith but then find restoration in Jesus. We will explore this theme, especially after some recent fan controversies, after Mary Magdalene's character growth in the Chosen series. We will also share our favorite stories of backsliding uh, characters, that is, in fiction, that we appreciate. Meanwhile, regardless of your means of time travel, whether it is DeLorean or TARDIS or simply drinking some kind of mystical vial or potion that sends you back to the past via dream or vision, make sure that we follow the true time Lord. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is the creator of time, 
God is not bound by time as we are. We know that we can trust him as we continue to seek and find fantastical truth. 